Good evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you live from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clotty in Washington, D.C. No, for me, Peter, I would have loved him to continue, you know, uh, resting in return. Yeah. But you imagine, it was, this was happening at the backdrop of disturbing developments that have occurred in the past. I told you that we have had nine contestants for the president. Zambia's former president Edgar Chagwalungu comes out of retirement to participate in politics. Our aim really is to look at the number of um, legal cases that are currently ongoing um, and our concern really has been with the way some of the judgments um, against some of the journalists and publications have been passed. Civil society groups plan to meet with Botswana journalists to analyze legal cases which they say threatens freedom of expression. Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group fired a surface-to-air missile at an Israeli drone along the Israeli-Lebanese border Saturday amid sporadic missile and rocket exchanges that have left many Lebanese worried that a war could erupt between Israel and Lebanon. And Egypt's President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi is warns against expanding the conflict in Gaza. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. Zambia's former president Edgar Chagwalungu has announced he is coming out of retirement to participate in politics. The move, officials of the party say, makes him the leader of the main opposition party, Patriotic Front or PF. It comes as the party appears to be split into two factions after one of the members of parliament from the party held a controversial congress and was elected president of the group. The former president made the announcement on the ninth anniversary of the death of the founder of the party, the late president Michael Chalufia Sata. For more reaction and what the announcement means for the party and the country, I reached Stephen Campiungo. He is the chief minority whip of the opposition in parliament and a former home affairs minister under Lungo. I received the news with a high sense of relief and I saw here is a man who is honoring his predecessor from the bottom of his heart because he has to forego the privileges that go with the former presidency uh, as a office. I mean, the movement and accommodation that is um, given to the office has to be for, uh, forgotten now. And so when he made those pronouncements, it was at a time when we have had these developments of four where one of our colleagues, out of the nine that were contesting for the presence of the party, when President Edgar Lungu indicated that he was going to step back, but we as a party said, look, we could only allow him to step back on one condition, that he stays to come and hand over to the next person. And therefore, because his mandate was to run from 2021, according to our party constitution, to 2026. Why do you think he decided to step in now? Because some people are saying, it is a strategic mistake because he appears this year to have been goaded into coming out of retirement because he will lose so much, including losing his pension and benefits as a former president if he came out of a retirement to join active politics. No, for me, Peter, I would have loved him to continue, you know, uh, resting in retirement idea. But you imagine it was this was happening at the backdrop of disturbing developments that have occurred in the past. I told you that we have had nine contestants for the president, Peda, and they were all having different uh, prospects and with different potential. One of them, one act, acting uh, like a renegade, sponsored by government, decided to hold an illegal conference. We were this colleague of ours, 
an MP, fifty people from the street and some of them from the ruling party who have been captured on camera uh, speaking free and uh, go and hold the sham of the conference, which does not meet not even ten percent of the requirement. And then the government were able to assist him to um, to pronounce himself as president of the Patriot Front. So the court action was taken, an injunction was secured for him to stop because the party had already uh, expelled him when he was holding that conference because he went and misbehaved um, at the secretariat where he broke things with his few supporters. What do you think? the message is from the former president to the supporters of the patriotic front following these um what some people describe as drama and internal party wrangling of the pf and to the people of zambia his message is that one he wouldn't have been a former president had it been for the patriot front party founded by the late president michael Tufet. and therefore he feels he has got an escapable duty of not sitting back in the comfort zone and watch a party that got him to become the 60th republican president being destroyed second he knows that democratic space was going to shrink um uh, to the point where the party was going to be probably be in a danger of losing all the elected members of parliament who, as you remember, were petitioned into the courts of law after being elected. So he feels he has got an escapable duty to protect the democracy that we are enjoying. And that's why he made a clarion call on other opposition political parties to come together, work together, and protect the democracy that we have embarked on as a people in, in, in the Republic of Zambia. Then the message to remember is that President Sata embraced everyone impressive his enemies and i don't think he'll close the door to listen to even miles Sampa in in as much as he has misconducted himself i think he's one person who has forgiven so many people and i don't think he would want to uh, to take a position where he closes the door to other members and so he would want to reconcile the party and make sure that the general members come together so that we can have a formidable patriot front that president sata would have loved to see Stephen Kampiungo is the minority chief whip of the opposition in parliament and a former home affairs minister under Lungu. He spoke with me from the Zambian capital, Lusaka. Civil society groups plan to meet with journalists in Botswana to analyze legal cases against journalists, which they say threatens freedom of expression as enshrined in the constitution. The seminar is organized by the Campaign for Free Expression with partners including the Botswana Editors Forum and the Inc. Center for Investigative Journalism. It will bring together journalists to examine what they say is the is the high number of ongoing legal cases against media groups in the country. It comes after civil society and media groups are expressing concern about the punitive nature and heavy fines awarded to plaintiffs in court cases against them. For more on the seminar, I reach Hanifa Manda. She is the project manager at the Campaign for Free Expression. Our aim really is to look at the number of um, legal cases that are currently ongoing um, and our concern really has been with the way some of the judgments um, against some of the journalists and publications have been passed because uh, we have generally noticed a trend whereby judgments um, seem a little bit punitive in the sense that um, they appear to be wanting to punish the journalists. You find that the cases are of defamation 
So in most cases, this would follow maybe them publishing a story um, that probably um, reveals um, some wrongdoing on the part of maybe influential people, be it private businesses or, you know, government officials. So you find that um, the damages for those cases are quite high. Uh, if I'm to give an example of the Gazette, you know, the recent judgment of 500,000 Pula, that, that is a bit exorbitant. What do you say to yes. critics of the media who are of the view that the media is the fourth estate and is supposed to ensure that the public is informed? You cannot, as they mm. argue, misinform the public and then turn around and say uh, punitive action brought against you is meant to suppress dissent or undermine freedom of expression as enshrined in the Botswana constitution. How do you respond to those? Yeah, the problem is um, with some of these litigants, when they take the cases to court, they should also be able to prove beyond reasonable doubt that they are not guilty or, or you know, they've been approached to try and settle these matters maybe out of court. Um, but, you know, it seems that there is some kind of external influence. And so for us, we, we term them strategic litigation against public participation in the sense that um, they are not really aimed at achieving justice, but it's it's really aimed at frustrating the journalists, um, depleting their resources in a way that they wouldn't be able then to continue with their duties, you know, effectively, because without any funds, especially in this environment where, you know, we know the media as we knew it, you know, with the, especially with print, certain things are being phased out and they have many challenges, you know, pe- not a lot of people subscribe. So already the media industry is is suffering in that aspect. And with all these Uh, you know, legal cases, what that does is it just adds the strain to their operations. Hanifa, some people are suggesting that the perception or the appearance or the criticism of the media fraternity in Botswana saying that these cases are a calculated attempt to intimidate and frustrate journalists and media houses rather than achieve justice is neither here nor there. Sometimes you find that the laws that are put in place either have gaps and they need to be realigned, they need to be reviewed so that they're tightened and they don't enable some of these things to take place. So it could be, in, it could be knowingly or it could be unknowingly, but um, it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. What do you think should be the major takeaways as this conference concludes next week? Our hope is that people become more informed about how they can um, fight these slap cases because we have our, our executive director, Professor Anton Haber, who's going to unpack, you know, just what are slap cases because you find some people aren't even aware. They, they might just take it as a defamation case, but some people don't actually realize that this this could be something else. You know, this could be something that's targeted at frustrating them. So we want to educate journalists and we are hoping that when they are better informed, they can be, you know, strengthened. And then our hope also is to form some kind of regional um, coalition whereby, you know, because we're doing the same thing in Zimbabwe and our plan is also to go to Malawi because we're seeing that this trend is actually growing in the region. In South Africa recently, we also had a case whereby a journalist was, um, you know, faced a slave case uh, from former President Jacob Zuma. So it's something that we want to sort of like um, connect the journalists in the region so that they can share experiences, they can learn from one another. So we hope that from that we can pick it up and make it, you know, wider. 
Hanifa Manda is the project manager at the Campaign for Free Expression. She spoke with me from Johannesburg, South Africa. On this weekend's Issues in the News, we address the airstrikes U.S. fighters launched on targets in eastern Syria linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. A World Health Organization official talks about the dire condition of Gaza's health care system and will examine the impact of the Israel-Hamas conflict on international security issues. Listen this weekend on VOA's Issues in the News. Queen Indlovu, the chief executive officer and co-founder of KP Drone Tech, a global service provider in the drone business, is the recipient of the 2023 Women and Drones Africa Humanitarian Award. Indlovu, a native of South Africa, received the award at a ceremony organized by Women and Drones at its seventh anniversary of the annual Women in Emerging Aviation Technologies Awards held at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. I reach Queen Indlovu for her reaction to the award and the anticipated impact on her work back home. I must say I was over the moon. I've been anxiously waiting for these days for the past two months when I got the news so I was so super excited, thinking that, is it really happening? Me in U.S. stage uh, receiving this award. So I'm very, very humbled and excited at the same time. Winning this award, how will that enhance the work that you do back in South Africa? It came at the right time, you know, because it's actually saying to South Africa, you've got a potential startup that can make a huge difference. And even the, the, the global stage has noticed and acknowledged the presence of the startup in South Africa. You better work with the startup, support it, because it appears to be presenting a solution that is needed in the country. Having said that, there are some few clients that have come on board, actually made it possible for us to get noticed globally. For instance, we work with a company called We Robotics that is based in Switzerland. They open flying labs all over the world. So we represent South Africa flying labs. So what we do, we decided to use drone technology to close the digital gap for the unemployed youth and kids that are in the rural areas, you know. So if it wasn't for their collaboration, for them noticing us as a startup, wouldn't be recognized globally. And back at home, we are lucky that we work with companies like UNICEF South Africa that supported us in this initiative. Hence, one received this humanitarian award. How has been the responses from those you have been training? The ex- excitement is amazing. And of course, my family and friends who are always praying for us, you know, and our partners, strategic partners, they're super excited, especially the clients, you know, that, they, that gave us an opportunity. So it's cemented to what they believe in us, that other people are beginning to notice. So for us, this means traction, even more traction, even more business uh, getting uh, other awards. But for me, award is just a token of appreciation. But doing what we're doing best, going out there to close the digital divide. I forgot to mention something, uh, Peter. 
uh, is that other than closing the digital divide for the unemployed youth and kids in the rural areas, what you also known for, we are thought leader in using drones for disaster management, but our niche is more on disaster preparedness because we are noticing that um, other companies, they are using drones to respond to disaster when it, it has already occurred, while our niche is on disaster preparedness. We say, let's use drones because it's a beautiful tool that can actually map the vulnerable areas and we inform the stakeholders to prepare for future disasters to mitigate the risk. So hence we host conferences. Even next week we'll be hosting our second conference uh, and making a big noise to all the stakeholders that climate change is here, disasters are here. Let's do something about it using our beautiful uh, drone technology. What do you think will be the major takeaway for you following this award that you receive? I must say that what I receive here, it's, it's network. We're, we're lucky that we, we're networking with women that are out there doing things. For instance, our ambition has always been building drones locally. So we saw some women that are building these drones for military purposes, you know, so the network and we saw some icons that are into disaster management space, you know, so for me was the potential of collaborating with other women globally, you know, but back home, because sometimes as much as we want to help our communities, we, we only a startup, so it's difficult to raise funds, you know, so the potential potential social impact funders within the the, 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 the the event itself that they are willing to know more about us and the work that we do so that we are able to scale our solution for the communities back home. Queen Indlovu is the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of KP Brown Tech. She spoke with me from here in Washington, D.C. In Uganda, a prominent parliamentarian from the governing National Resistance Movement, or NRM, says the ongoing opposition boycott is a publicity stunt. This, Felix Adupa Ongwech says, is a calculated attempt by the opposition in parliament to appear to be defending human rights and to raise funds from abroad. His remarks come after the members of the minority in the Ugandan parliament announced they will not return until the government commits to the respect of human rights and stops using the police to arrest, intimidate and harass opponents of the administration. But NRM parliamentarian Felix Adupa Ongwech tells me the opposition in Uganda often provoke the police and break the law. They then claim to be victims when the police officers enforce the laws as mandated by the constitution. I remember uh, Prime Minister table the list of those ones that were in the hands of security agents and those ones who are not in the hands of security agents. And the opposition uh, concur with the right honorable Prime Minister that yes, those ones who are in prisons and those ones who are uh, not in prison should be released. Human Rights, Uganda Human Rights Commission came on board and also released a new list of those who are in prison and those who are not in prison. Now, after all this engagement with the opposition members, our parliament decided to give opposition another time to bring their list of those who they claim they are missing. Opposition's plan to boycott plenary sitting, it does not affect the running of the House. Parliament will keep on proceeding the way it's supposed to be. And uh, if they want their issues to be addressed, I think the parliament is the right place for them to address the government. But, but they are yes. saying that the government has yet to demonstrate commitment to the protection 
and the respect of human rights in Uganda. And they are prevented from holding meetings. Their supporters are attacked. Even members of parliament are attacked by state security agencies or institutions, including the police and the judiciary. Uh, you, don't think, you don't think they are... I don't uh, know are, are how you define human rights abuse and how you define human rights protection. There are rights that you can enjoy and there are rights that you cannot enjoy. If you plan to have a one million war or a one million march from Entebbe International Airport, up to Kampala city center and you want to claim that is your right and in between people's businesses are there people are you know walking through their normal duties and you are organizing a one million march from Entebbe International Airport to Kampala and the police talks to you arrest you what do we call a preventive arrest would you still claim that is abuse of human rights are you saying that the reason for boycotting parliament about human rights concerns are not legitimate Others are legitimate, but most of them are illegitimate because the other claims that they are pushing is very, very inconsequential. They lack merit and substance in them. You know, if, if, if you are a Puritan of such nature, you must understand the basic principles and doctrines of human rights. What are those basic principles? They are only talking about Robert Chagolani when he's arrested, his right has been abused. They are talking about opposition MPs when they provoke security agencies. Their rights have been abused. We must look human rights abuse in general context. It should not be selectively. Are we together? But for them, they think as opposition, they have right to do anything. Nobody should stop them because later on they will come and cry to international community saying that there is human rights abuse. These are issues that each and every country are facing. Will you support any efforts by Mr. Tayeba or perhaps the Speaker of Parliament to engage the opposition to address their concerns and a commitment from the government that there will be a respect for human rights and that they will be protected? Right Honorable Thomas Tayeba, in his own wisdom, he had to call several meetings with the leader of the opposition to discuss a diplomatic way of resolving this matter. But opposition has not turned up for that meeting. They are just playing hide and seek games. What the opposition politicians are doing now is politics. We have only one and a half years to go to the next election. So they must show the population, show the population that they are working. They are serious. So they are just politicking. Matthias Zompoga has been leader of opposition from 2021 up to date. Why didn't he bring those issues of human rights violations? Why is he bringing when the election is nearing? One, they are looking for funds from their donors to show that they have been working to account to their funders that they are really working and they are putting parliament to account. Felix Adupa Ongwench is a member of parliament from the Governing National Resistance Movement, or NRM. He spoke with me from the Ugandan capital, Kampala. In Nigeria, Ohaneze Indigbo, a social cultural group that seeks to speak and represent all Igbo groups across the world is threatening to sue President Bola Tinubu's government for appointing only five ministers from the southeastern part of the country. The group expressed concern about what it says has been a deliberate effort to sideline the Igbo people from power after the civil war which ended on January 15, 1970. But critics accuse the group of tribalism saying the president has a mandate to appoint whomever he wants to work with. For more about the demands for ministers from the southeast, I reach Alexander Ogbonia. He is the spokesperson for Ohanazi Indigo. 
is a, a matter that is bordering on the orchestrated uh, alienation of the people of Igbo from the center of power in Nigeria. And it is based on this that you can find that among the geopolitical zones, it is only something that you have the least number of states. And uh, most of the time, they try to consider uh, these states and local government as the basis for appointment into positions of power in Nigeria. In the first place, they make sure that our people are remained in only four remained with only five states. It is not it is unacceptable. And the least number of local government areas is unacceptable. But more importantly is that uh, when Buhari was there, he made it clear that it, uh, the South East didn't vote him, and to that extent, he will not give them the creative positions in government. And now that Tinubu has come up, uh, he also following the same uh, track. Doesn't the constitution give President uh, Tinubu the latitude to choose whomever he feels he wants to work with? So if he's chosen five people from the uh, South East, why should there be a problem? If he had not chosen anybody, then I would see. Or many people will see the reason why you should go to court about it. But he's chosen five people among his ministers. The point is that um, when you look at number of ministers in Nigeria, it become clear that it is, it is part of his patronage. Because patronage, uh, on the other hand, is patronizing people, some people more than the other. Number two, he, who knows the South is or Igbo people, we know that we don't lack an ex-party. We don't lack an experience. We don't like any intellect. We don't like any ingenuity. All these are in abundance in our, amongst our people. So it becomes questionable why some other people that have, that are known for backwardness will present more credible, more pre-credible, more people that are seen to be more credible, more brilliant, more, and so on, than people. So it becomes questionable. It's not, it's not acceptable in America. This is a situation we have lived with some time, but we cannot continue to, we cannot continue to sit and watch it try and of course like we have made it clear that the difficulty will go to court but that is only one aspect if you come to the southeast now you see youth rescue you see protestation you see agitations but who is to blame for these agitations because some are accusing the Ohanazi of not talking to your young ones who are creating instability they say you you have failed to rein in the agitations of these young ones. Yeah, it is a difficult thing because uh, we have uh, we have convergence with the youths or the IPOB and the uh, uh, people that are people that are agitating. We have we have convergence with them on one side. The point of convergence is that we all feel marginal, being uh, being marginalized. We feel the pain. We feel the pain. We are not happy about it. So they 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 are right in that agitation that if we continue to treat all this way, you better allow us to leave Nigeria. So where we have a divergence is that we are pleading we are pleading, pleading with them that we rather prefer restructuring and working in collaboration. We certain and minimal that for uh, so that is why we have a divergence. So their case is very clear. You know, it's a sympathetic matter. So we cannot begin to say that they are not right in the agitation. So that is what makes it complicated and difficult. Alexander Ogbonia is a spokesperson for Hanazi in Digbo. He spoke with me from the Nigerian capital Abuja. Egypt's President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi is warning against expanding the conflict in Gaza, calling the entire region a ticking time bomb. 
Egypt also reported it shot down several drones Friday that it said were sent by Yemen's pro-Iranian Houthi militia. Lebanon's Hezbollah, another Iranian proxy militia, also has been firing rockets and other shells at northern Israel since the conflict began as fears arise that a war may break out between Israel and Lebanon. For VOA, Edward Iranian reports from the Egyptian capital, Cairo. Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group fired a surface-to-air missile at an Israeli drone along the Israeli-Lebanese border Saturday amid sporadic missile and rocket exchanges that have left many Lebanese worried that a war could erupt between Israel and Lebanon. After several apparent drone and rocket attacks along Egypt's northern border Friday, which left a number of people wounded, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi warned Saturday against expanding the nearly three-week-old Gaza conflict to other parts of the region, including Egypt. He says that drones entered Egyptian territory from Yemen Friday and were shot down. Sisi also warned that any further expansion of the conflict is not in the interest of the region. He underscored it as like a time bomb that could destroy all. He noted Egypt is a sovereign nation and asks everyone to respect its sovereignty and position on the map. Yemen's Houthi militia group, which controls much of northern Yemen and a coastline along the Red Sea, is an ally of both Iran and Lebanon's Hezbollah. It has used Iranian-supplied drones to attack other cities inside neighboring Saudi Arabia in the past. This is the first report of Houthi drones attacking Egypt. As Israeli attacks intensify against the pro-Iranian Hamas militia that controls Gaza, Iranian Foreign Minister Hussein Amir Abdullahian warned Saturday that groups which are Iran's allies are prepared to act if the war in Gaza continues. He added that Iran's allies have enough rockets, missiles and drones that they can access as the need arises. Amir Abdullahian threatened Israel, saying the continued killing of women and children and civilians in Gaza and the West Bank will open the door to what he called a variety of options and that anything is possible. He noted Iran's allies are trained and ready to move forward if need be. Amir Abdullahian also called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and noted that UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is traveling to the region in the coming hours to try and find a political solution. Khattar Abu Diab, who teaches political science at the University of Paris, tells VOA that Egypt and other regional countries are increasingly concerned about their own national security, given both internal and external threats like Friday's attacks on the northern Sinai. Abu Diab says the attacks on Egypt may have been from Yemen or from the other side of the Egyptian border, but they are a threat to the country's security, and Egypt, like other regional states, is worried this conflict could spill over onto their own soil and threaten both their borders and their internal stability. Abu Diab points out that Egypt controlled the Gaza Strip from 1948 to 1967 and has had to deal with Islamic extremism from both Gaza and the northern Sinai for a long time.
Egypt, he says, is prepared to stop any transfer of Palestinians to the Sinai to protect its own security. Saudi-owned Al Arabiya TV reported Saturday that a third convoy of aid trucks was prepared to enter Gaza to help the civilian population. It was not clear what supplies the convoy was carrying. President Sisi said Saturday that Egypt was working to facilitate the movement of the convoy into Gaza. Edward Uranian for VOA News, Cairo. This is the Voice of America, and you are listening to Nightline Africa. I'm your host, Peter Clote, in Washington. Coming up in the second half of Nightline Africa Sports with Samson O'Malley, and that will be followed by a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs and Music from African Collection. But first... It's now time for Nightland Africa Sports, and for that, let's join Samson O'Malley. Hello, Samson. Hi, Peter, and good evening, sports fans. Welcome to Nightline Africa Sports. Defending champion South Africa kicked its way to a record fourth Rugby World Cup title by beating New Zealand 12-11 on Saturday. A test battle saw New Zealand reduced to 14 men early on as the All Blacks captain Sam Kane saw his yellow card upgraded to a red in the first half as he became the first player to be red-carded in the final. Andre Pollard, who wasn't named in the Springboks' initial Rugby World Cup squad, scored all of South Africa's points to retain their Rugby World Cup title in Paris, which repeated its 1995 success over New Zealand and denied the All Blacks their own chance to win a fourth title in their record fifth final. South Africa's Springbok coach Jack Ninamba attributed their victory at the Rugby World Cup to teamwork and support the team got from South Africa rugby fans at home. Relief for the players, they deserve that and they were good enough to do that. And then, but this is probably for our fans, uh, for South Africa. I think there were 62 million people that, that, that united, people bought t-shirts, green t-shirts for everyone. So um, we felt every single a little bit of energy they gave us and I think in the last three games uh, with three one-point victories we, we needed that and uh, that drove us. And now to boxing where WBC heavyweight champion Tyson Fury claimed a controversial split decision victory over former UFC champion Francis Nguano in Saudi Arabia on Saturday night. The Cameroonian put Fury on the canvas in round three after connecting with a left hook. But while one judge scored it 95 to 94 in favor of Ngon, two gave it to Fury at 96 to 93 and 95 to 94. The Cameroonian believed he won the fight. I was looking forward, I was really looking forward to win this fight. But I do uh, learn a lot tonight about the sport. You know, this is really my first time um, to fight and uh, to do like 10 round boxing match, straight boxing. And, uh, you know, I can tell myself that. I didn't do bad against the the number one uh, heavyweight in the world. And out to golf, legendary Kenya professional golfer Dismas Ndiza is the winner of the 2023 Uganda Pro Golf Open. Ndiza scored a total gross of 277 in 72 holes, 11 on the par, to lift the trophy for the record seventh time after earlier triumphs in 2007, 2008, 2010, 2011, 2012 and 2018. 
in Giza and about $5,000 for his victory. I was enjoying myself because I won this a lot of uh, six times now, seven times now. I was not, I was not having a pressure. I was enjoying myself. To part only that part, small part on number 18, uh, not number nine and number 11 and 17. That one I was only I opened my hands, but I was okay. And that's it for this week's edition of Nightline Africa Sports. Back to you, Peter. Thanks a lot, Samson. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. We'll link up with you again next Sunday for another look at African Sports. Nightline Africa Sports. Now let's take a closer look at Africa, the problems, the prospect in time of conflict, in time of peace. Here's one man's point of view with Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. Hello, Dr. Jonah. Good evening, Africa. During the 10th emergency session of the General Assembly, the peoples of the world in some way revolted against the slow progress in the Security Council and its inability to take decisions properly when violence is being perpetrated in Middle East, particularly the Gaza Strip, Israel, and the West Bank. And what they wanted to demonstrate that if the Security Council cannot act, that the Assembly can act. This is why the decision of this special emergency session is highly significant. By a vote of 120 against a negative of 14, the General Assembly showed the Security Council that it must act. That resolution calls for durable, durable peacefire, or more truce, the precise words, durable truce. And the facilitation of humanitarian means to gather particularly at a time when Gaza is under siege, when for two weeks they are deprived of food and water and energy. And UNRWA, the institution set up by the General Assembly to assist Palestinian refugees, announced that it could no longer operate effectively. Before that resolution was adopted, the Arab resolution, which was supported by the Organization of Islamic Conference, decided that they could not accept amendments submitted by Canada on behalf of a number of European members. Those amendments were intended, according to the Canadian representative, to restore balance in the Arab resolution. But as the Pakistani representative noted, it was not trying to restore balance. It was an attempt to create an imbalance and injustice. It was noted that the drafters of the Arab resolution were very circumspect in not introducing provisions that were critical of anyone. And as the Pakistani representative added, that if there should be any balance in terms of what the Canadians were saying, then they should be prepared also to criticize Christian actions in Gaza. And that was one of the reasons why the two critical amendments 
by Canada, that there was no mention of condemnation for Hamas, and that there was not explicit demand that hostages be released immediately. The lesson we should learn is though the veto members may be powerful in the Security Council, when all the peoples are to discuss, they have the same power. Also, the session in many speeches said that the Secretary General of the United Nations should be commended for what he said in the Security Council. And they criticized the Israeli representative for using intimidating language to silence the Secretary General. There is also something to notice. What I will call pundit-like journalists immediately tried to pretend that the resolution that was passed by an overwhelming majority was very weak. This is quite wrong because this emergency session was called because of the Uniting for Peace Resolution, which was first established by the General Assembly in 1950 during the Korean War. In fact, that resolution was introduced at that time by the United States. Yes, it has some controversial elements. But that resolution did magnify the role of the General Assembly. And therefore, when the General Assembly is acting under Uniting for Peace Resolution, it has a different implication. And also these pundit-like journalists are not familiar with United Nations procedures and practice. That resolution was stable and there was a precondition that it must be passed by two-thirds majority, which makes it an important question. So this is what one has to guard against. Because right now, not only the peoples of the world, the majority of the members are disenchanted with the Security Council. And no one should present them with arguments that would make the United Nations unable even to implement the resolution of the General Assembly. Therefore, what comes next will be of consequence. Is the rejection by the Israeli representative in the, in the session that they would not accept the resolution and they would use all means to achieve the objective. And one last point. Is there are attempts and failure to back the issue of a durable agreement. Most people must know that when you have a truce, there cannot be a truce without full ceasefire. We have a, a truce in the buffer zone in Korea. No one can say that that truce should be weak and government should not comply with it. We even have truce in the Middle East today between Lebanon and Israel, between Syria and Israel. It is meant that it should have full ceasefire. So this is what we have to get against. I thank you. That was Waman's point of view, a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. And it's Sunday on Nightline Africa. This is the time we get to relax and reflect a flashback with music from the continent.
today I have the Fulani. What's going on, fellas? Yeah, 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 yeah. We there, we there. I'm a yes, Michael Fall. Yes, Muhammad, I'm a dude. Oh my God, it's been like how many years? Since I remember, oh. 2003. Since Rod Murray. Oh my goodness, it's been a very long time. So you went back home. Yeah, what was, was the experience like? I went back home. It was just different. I mean, it was a different place, different times. And it's been three decades. You know, when I left, when we left in the 90s, it was, you know, the world wasn't there yet. The world was not there. So I saw a lot of differences, a lot of different groups of people, different tribes, everybody. Everything is just was just like I'm in like a like a kind of uh, I don't know. I, I was like an alien actually in a different country. Right, right. Yes. But but you made a lot of connections. Oh yeah, I made a, yeah I made a lot of connect. I, I see it's a lot of uh, I mean the music business is change. It's a lot of changes in the music vibes there. Whatever. I met a lot of people. I met a lot of artists, uh, DJs. You know. And so did that um, influence your music at all? Yes, because actually when we left, when I went there, my, my head, main goal, because a lot of people complained that that kind of music we're playing with too much American or whatever. But we I remember when you had interviews 2003, we said we got three different styles of music. The, the, the African style, the, um, the hip-hop style, then we come to the reggae. With the reggae, we're doing it last, so... We're doing the Afro reggae style now, you know what I'm saying? You know, the Afro business the Afro reggae music now, so this is the right, right time. Yeah, so that's why if you listen to how I'm now, the new one, the African Lions, you're going to see more, a lot of reggae influence right. in it, you know what I mean? The Afro, you know what I mean? Yeah. So what about you, Muhammad? Which one do you like the best? Uh, I like this one, the, the, reggae, the, the Afro beats and the reggae would blend together, you know? But that's universal. Yeah, I'm so used to seeing you with the reggae flavor, though. Because, you know, you got that rah rah rah, you know? Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about one. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, how was it making this new cut that you guys had? The Sierra Leone cut. That one, I'm feeling it. Actually, 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 it's a combination of a Nigerian artist. It's a Nigerian artist. It's an artist too. Oh, splendid. We call him Splendid, the Magic Fingers. But we met. I met him. Um, I mean, through a mutual friend. And um, then I told him what I need, and he 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 had vibes, and he really said, "Say, I got something for you. I know exactly what I what I got for you guys." And so he started sending me the beats. And I started feeling them, and he just we just blend. So who wrote the lyrics? Actually, Splendid. Splendid wrote the lyrics, and we did uh, some of the. But he he wrote the lyrics. He's a good writer. All right, so we're gonna go to this first cut, and it's gonna be um, Sierra Leone. Is it Sweet Sierra Leone or Sierra Leone? It's Sierra Leone. This one is Sierra Leone. This one we this one we wrote. This one we wrote. Oh, this one you wrote. Yeah, this one we wrote. But the one I'm talking about, I thought you were talking about the African Lion. But this Sierra Leone we wrote it. We uh we we wrote it, and it was produced by Young Lee. Uh, yeah, we wrote it and we, 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 we uh, Young Lee and us wrote it together. When I went to Freetown, I did that stuff with him, you know what I mean? Before he came, he's in the United States right now, but before he came, when I went there the first time, he was the first producer actually that I worked with, you know what I mean? So when I went there, I went to see him and we, we, we kicked up and we did that track. Actually, we did two tracks. We right. We did that one and we did another one called Bakayad. It's a reggae joint. So did, did this one come, um, did it come up because of the trip to Freetown City? Yes, this came actually. This music been in the making, you know. I mean, actually, remember our whole album, the um, the Wake Up Call album. We right. had this song. Um, uh, we we talk about uh, Sierra Leone there a lot, you know. what I'm saying like, wake up, call. When I wake up, wake up, girl. Sierra Leone people. When I wake up, oh, Sierra Leone. Right. Now we own, oh, Sierra Leone. Now we own. It's exactly like yeah. a remix too. 
Okay, it's like a advanced, right? But it's like an advanced. Way yes, of, you know what I mean? I'm really feeling yeah, it. Feel? I'm feeling it. Yeah, yeah, I love the beat too. It's like a book, you know what I mean? So we're just coming back to. And you're tradition. a phenomenal writer too. Yeah, I love yeah. your skills. <laughs> Thank you. He did a really good job on them lyrics. I ain't gonna oh, yeah, and that beat yeah, is just. It give yeah. me, but it give me like a reggae vibe. Yeah, and you know, when you listen to it, man, we got that. You know, African music, man. You know, African music. Yes. Most, most music, I mean, African music is originally it's reggae music, I come from African music. Yes, so everything. Like, yeah. This is like Alanja, love that track, man. Yeah. This is one where he says, Sarah, 
Remember Sisla, he listened to Yeah, but actually, uh, Sisla, we actually, we inspired him. He said we inspired him, man. He did a song oh, called yeah, Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone, I love you so, Mama Africa. Yeah, he did a song on that or whatever. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, we're yeah. working on something. I mean, we, we want to do like uh, one of the songs. We want to do a uh, remix for the I'll do a Most definitely. Now, you, know, he's the, you know, he's the father of revolution, man. That's yeah. a real thing, man. We need him. We need Kalanji. Kalanji is the that man. That would be phenomenal. You guys yeah. did a, uh, like, if he did a remix. And Kalanji yeah. connected with Sierra Leone because he's a maroon. Yeah, you know. Oh, yeah, is he? Yeah, Kalanji is a maroon. Yeah, yeah. Really history. Oh. A sizzler, yeah. Sizzler okay. Maroon. So there's a lot of history between yeah, a lot of history. maroons and... And they, they right now, there's a lot of maroon history in Sierra Leone. Yeah, yeah, the connection between yeah. that those two is just phenomenal. I love it. So what are you guys hoping to achieve with this new CD? Like, what's the vibe as it relates to the older music that you guys put out before? Actually, we're trying to make, uh, reach more listeners, more people, you know what I mean? Because, uh, you know, back in the day when we were doing this, the internet is not that exposed like it's now, you know what I mean? Right. Now, now, now a, lot, a lot of people, most of the kids now that were listening to us when they were younger, grown now, and most of them looking for us. So we're here. We're still here. Fulani Twins is still here. Go to uh, go on YouTube and Google Fulani Twins. We are everywhere. Spotify, everywhere. You know what I mean? So Right. And to me, you guys are just more refined. Yeah. I mean, we're looking for more uh, listeners, more different, you know what I'm saying, just to take the African music. To the, uh, to the other level. Right, like when I first met you, y'all was like baby. Yeah, it's been a while. Come on, that's like almost 30, 20 something years ago. Yeah, now you're a yeah, grown man, yeah. everything's more defined. More defined. Like, you know, life, you know how life is, man, you're getting older, so you're getting wiser. You're, you know right. What so, yeah. what's up, Muhammad? How are you, darling? I'm good. I'm, I'm Give thanks to the most high. Yes, no doubt. I'll be seeing you guys on Facebook, posting yeah. and Instagram, posting all y'all stuff. I just want to say I'm, I'm very sorry about the loss of your wife. I never did reach out to you. And, um, you know, I hope everything is going well on your end. And I can see it is because you guys are still pumping out despite the challenges of everyday life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's good to, that you guys are still grinding. You know what I mean? So what's up? Let me see this next cut that we got. Serrano. The mountain has a sign of Africa. As a true legend, my legacy is my true essence. We give them show that's so sweet and tense. Flow so package, man, I turn over to African lions. Straight from the mountains, fearless as soldier, we are grateful. And that was our Sunday music spot. Hope you enjoyed the music from Nightland Africa. You are the English to Africa service of the Voice of America in Washington. Oh, home sweet home, oh, home, Mama Africa. Nightline Africa comes to you from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Hope you enjoy the program tonight. As you know by now, we're on air on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC. From the Nightline Africa team, including producer Nicole Peters and engineer Patrick Dea, we say thanks for joining us. And remember, as the elders say, if evil lasts for a long time, it becomes a tradition. I'm your host, Peter Clotty in Washington. Good evening, Africa. Black is beautiful, my pride.